The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Open your Bibles uh, and read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll read verses 1 through 16. This is God's Word. Now, concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each, each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. So to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. Let's pray. God, you have given us your word, and you have given us all portions of your word that we might be built up in Christ. And so we pray that as we come to the word that you spoke and continue to speak to us by your spirit, We pray that you would shape us more and more into the image of our Savior for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we come to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, we reach kind of a turning point uh, in the letter. And as we turn to the text, I can't help but think as sort of an analogy of of my own um, overconfident attempts to do some home improvement projects recently. I'm not sure if you've experienced this where you go in uh, to perhaps Lowe's and you have a task at hand. Uh, Let's say I need to install a ceiling fan. And so you go in and you go and and you need to ask the Lowe's associate and you ask a very generic question and the Lowe's uh, associate begins to sort of ask some pointed questions to you. 
I'd, I'd like to install a ceiling fan. Well, what kind of uh, electrical box do you have in your ceiling? A blue one? Uh, and I'm not sure. Uh, well, is it attached to both joists, and is it rated to, for the weight of your ceiling fan? I don't know. It's nailed to some wood up there, but I, you know, I don't know about on that. Well, what kind of wire goes in it? Is it two-way or three-way? I don't know. I only saw one coming into it. Well, you know, well, well, is it two-way? And before I know it, there's so much more going on in this project, and I end up leaving Lowe's with three times as much as I thought I was going to get, and I have a whole education in home improvement that I didn't even know I needed when I arrived at the store. Well, I think that's something of the situations the Corinthians find themselves in when they head to chapter 7. See, going into the book of Corinthians, we know from what Paul tells us that the Corinthians had actually written a letter to Paul and asked him a series of specific questions. They had a set of questions that they wanted answers to, questions about marriage and sexuality, questions about spiritual gifts, questions about the resurrection, a number of questions about church and and theology and life. But Paul, when he got their letter and, and when he talked with people from the church, realized that this was a church in disarray with, with more fundamental problems that he needed to address than just the questions that they sent his way. And so Paul has now spent six chapters of Corinthians addressing questions or concerns or issues that the Corinthians didn't even know they needed to be addressed. They, uh, Paul has talked about important principles that the Corinthians need to grasp in areas of sexuality and, and, and marriage and in areas of lawsuits and areas of pride and controversy in the church. And it's only now when Paul has laid this theological foundation for you are not your own. You're bought with a price. And you need to know that before I address your questions about marriage and sexuality. You are co-inheritors of the world. You need to know who you are in Christ so that we can address questions about how you're interacting one with one another and how you're suing one another and, and approaching controversies with one another. You need to know that the only reason we have to boast is in the Lord himself for everything we are and everything we do and everything we have is from Christ alone. See, these are the theological truths Paul has had to establish as sort of the the foundation before he could begin to address the questions that the Corinthians actually had. And so perhaps you can can imagine the Corinthians rolling open Paul's letter, expecting to get the answers and working through six chapters of Paul reorienting their gaze around Christ, who Christ is, and what the gospel means for their lives before now. In chapter 7, Paul says, okay, now concerning those things you wrote about, now we can start answering those questions that you had. And that's where we pick up here in in chapter 7. So Paul begins, now concerning the things you wrote about, and while the grammar of this first verse is not uh, very precise, it seems that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman was the question or the, the position that the Corinthians were wondering about. Is this a good statement? Is this uh, a, a true statement of how we should approach marriage and sexuality? And this would make perfect sense knowing Corinth's role in the Greek world. The uh, Greek world had uh, a number of people known as ascetics who particularly looked at denying 
uh, bodily pleasures as a, a way or a philosophy of life. And it, we would not at all be surprised to find that in, in Corinth there would be a number of people hearing this Greek philosophy and saying, oh, well, Paul, you know, we know, we know sexual morality is bad. Maybe these Greeks are right, and we should just avoid sex and marriage altogether or at least this, the sexual part uh, of marriage. Maybe, maybe like these ascetics, you know, this is just bad. Um, so it, it, perhaps very understandable why some Christians may, might swing to the opposite of the sexual immorality and wonder, is this whole area something that we should just uh, give up? But Paul, as he begins to answer this question in the first several verses of, of chapter 7, believes the opposite. And Paul begins his response to this question by affirming the goodness of both marriage and sexuality within marriage. Each man, he says, should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And not even the most holy activities, prayer and the means of grace, are legitimate reasons to abstain for sexuality in marriage except for a brief time by mutual agreement. And so Paul begins by establishing and reiterating the goodness of marriage and sexuality. As we look at this first, particularly the first uh, five verses of this chapter and as he handles marriage and sexuality, I want to notice two things about what Paul says uh, about marriage and sexuality here. First of all, when we read this passage, Paul's discussion can almost make it sound as if he's a little bit negative about marriage. On the one hand, when we get down to, to verse 6, Paul almost seems to think that singleness is, is a more elevated state than marriage or that he wishes people would choose singleness over marriage. And in the first five verses, it almost makes it sound like the main purpose of marriage is just to you know, keep us from sin. But beyond keeping us from sin, um, that seems to be the focus of, of Paul's argument here. It almost sounds like he's saying, well, if you can't control yourself enough, go ahead and get married. But this is absolutely not Paul's case and we want to, or Paul's opinion, and we want to understand that Paul does affirm the goodness of marriage. He is, uh, Paul in these verses is addressing a particular situation in Corinth. A particular situation in Corinth where, where many were remaining single because they thought it was a better or more spiritual state than being married. And rather than thinking that it was particularly pleasing to sort of struggle against Satan's constant temptation in a city overflowing with sexual pleasure and excess, Paul says, no, you should get married. Rather than struggle and, 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 and burn with, with your temptations, marry. Marriage is good. This is something that you should pursue. And Paul is not saying here that the only reason that God created marriage or its only rationale is that we avoid sin. I think this passage has to be read in the context of what Paul has said in Ephesians chapter 5. You remember Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul sets this beautiful and glorious picture of marriage as a picture of Christ's love for the church. Paul's the one who said that marriage and sexuality are the best and most beautiful picture we have of Christ's love for the church. Marriage is God's good idea given in the garden before the fall. And Paul reminds us of this. Paul says, if you, if you think of it this way, Paul says that marriage is a bold arrow pointing to his love for his people. Marriage is a good thing that God has created. Marriage is not just an, okay, do this so you don't fall in temptation. When used as God has intended and God created, 
marriage and sexuality are part of God's good creation and point right back to his love and his glory. So we need to know as we read this and as we think about who Paul is and what he's saying, that Paul is not downplaying marriage here or saying that it is only a guard against temptation. Marriage is a good thing created by God, and Paul certainly upholds that. But the second thing I want us to notice about Paul's understanding of marriage and sexuality here is how his understanding of marriage is radically shaped by Christ's sacrifice for his people. When a man and woman marry, Paul says, they are giving themselves to their spouse. Marriage is not about getting something for myself. It is fundamentally about giving myself to my spouse. As I talk to people, um, as I talk to teens, as I talk to, to people approaching marriage, it is amazing how many times I hear people saying something along the lines of, well, when I get married, I will be able to. Or when I get married, I will get. When I get married, I will have. And it becomes evident that there is a, a view or a perception that marriage will be a means of getting something. And of course, Paul is saying that, yes, marriage is a good arena for sexuality and and marriage does bring people together for companionship. Those are good things. But Paul reminds us here that the fundamental foundation of marriage, when you marry someone, you are giving yourself to your spouse. This is a radical concept. It was radical in the ancient world and it's radical in in our modern world. As with most things in life, sexuality was and has become a broken arena where Satan has wrecked God's good design. And in many ways, it has become a matter of personal pleasure in getting what I want. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, I saw a quote from Miley Cyrus. Some of you may know that Miley Cyrus is perhaps one of the most outspoken and abrasive proponents of free sexuality today. And she said, look, as long as you're not hurting anyone, your choices are your choices. Do what you want and get what you want. That's, that's the view of our modern culture. But Tim, Tim Keller has argued that this self-focused mindset has, isn't just something out there in our culture. It's invaded our understanding of marriage, even within the church. Keller argues that over the last few centuries, there's been a gradual shift in which he says, instead of finding meaning through self-denial, self-sacrifice, and giving oneself to the duties of marriage and family, Marriage has been redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. In this view, Keller says, married persons marry for themselves, not to fulfill responsibilities to God, to society, or to their spouse. And Keller concludes this. He says, marriage used to be about us. Marriage is now about me. I think the, the title alone of an article that appeared in the New York Times in 2010 is enough to give us the picture The article was entitled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. You see, you see what's creeping in? Marriage is about finding something for me. Paul cuts to the core here. And of course, while many in the church would readily agree that we have no right to sexual pleasure outside of marriage, it seems that many of us carry this self-focused attitude into our marriages, assuming that we have some rights some right to be pleased or fulfilled by our spouse. 
And cracks begin to form even early in marriages when our selfish demands to be pleased and fulfilled by our spouse go unmet. But notice the heart of Paul's argument. The heart and and the soul and the foundation of marriage for Paul is a complete, equal self-giving in marriage. Where he says, the woman does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do we see how significant Paul's statement is? Paul's statement reorients the purpose, the foundation, the nature of marriage completely. But of course, if we know what Paul says about marriage, namely that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church, this shouldn't surprise us. Because what did Christ do for his people? He, considered, he gave his own body for his people. He gave himself completely and fully for his people. And he said, not my will, but thine, Father, thy will be done. And that meant giving himself, sacrificing himself to the point of death for his bride. When we think about marriage, this understanding can radically transform what our marriages look like. You know, James, in James chapter 4, James reminds us that conflict Conflict and fights arise when our desires go unmet and we get angry. But can you see the beauty and the peace and the joy of a relationship that's not based on my desires being met? But when both spouses approach marriage daily as an opportunity to give themselves to their spouse because my life, my body are not my own, I am here in a marriage to give myself to a spouse. The daily rhythm of marriage for Paul is giving ourselves to one another, thinking that the other has authority over us, our bodies, our time, our effort. This is the heart and soul of marriage for Paul. So Paul affirms and believes and certainly upholds the goodness of marriage, and he establishes here the foundation of marriage and the goodness of sexuality within marriage. But having commented on the nature of marriage and the goodness and appropriateness of sexuality within marriage, Paul moves now in verses 6 through 9 to cut down another distortion that was present in his day. See, while ascetics in the Greek culture uh, were were promoting um, giving up sexuality altogether, in the Jewish context, marriage was nearly a requirement. In Jewish teaching, marriage was a high good, nearly a requirement. In fact, if you wanted to be a rabbi or a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. It was a requirement. And in Jewish circles, there was much shame on people who did not marry. And so Paul now cuts against the grain of the Jewish teaching. While the Jewish teaching may have led some to say, well, marriage is the only good way to go, Paul challenges this, saying to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain single, and even expressing his wish that all would be single like he is. And again, I don't think this statement is meant to undermine the goodness of marriage or elevate singleness over marriage, but it affirms that singleness is in itself a good state that God calls many to. And if God has called us to singleness, this gift is just as good as marriage. 
And certainly, uh, we'll see more as we come to the end of chapter 7 of Paul's opinions on, on singleness. But Paul's affirmation of remaining single certainly includes, certainly includes his, uh, his resulting freedom to serve the Lord. He talks later in chapter 7 about the opportunity that he has to serve the Lord, his freedom to serve the Lord in a way that he couldn't if he were married, when he would spend more time being concerned about his marriage and his relationship and his family. I was reading a book recently by Sam Albury, a single pastor in England who makes a a similar comment about how he is able to give himself to his ministry in ways that he would not be able to do uh, if he was married. But I want to make sure that we understand that Paul is not advocating singleness because he can minister more, as if singleness is only a good thing if we give ourselves so extravagantly to ministry that, that the ministry itself justifies singleness. Singleness is a good gift, apart from whether we are pressing every, every minute of our lives um, in, in a ministry context. Tim Keller, in, in his book about marriage, spends a chapter on singleness and emphasizes this point. He says, singleness is not only okay if you end up giving yourself dramatically to ministry. Singleness in itself is a good gift that God gives many of his people. Now, for some, this might sound like an empty claim. Certainly in our culture, the idea of singleness is a good thing, especially if it means also abstaining from sexual pleasure, is almost nonsensical. I remember talking to one of my best friends in college who who went and joined the National Guard, and he talked about how in his three-month training over the summer, as he was talking to guys in his unit, they found out that not only was he not married, but that he had never had sex as a 24-year-old man. They were horrified and outraged and expressed, you know, their opinion that he should fix that problem immediately. It was, it was something that they didn't even have a frame of reference to understand. In our culture, the idea of abstaining from this pleasure, whether it's in marriage or not, is, is almost out of, out of the frame of reference. But even in the church, even in the church, we can give this impression that marriage is the, the better state or that singleness isn't actually better. I don't know how many of you have experienced or, or maybe uh, seen others go through the pressures of well-intentioned matchmaking that can go too far and that lead to almost a, a, an oppressive uh, scenario for some, uh, particularly for, for young women, um, as they are, are pressured or talked about uh, well, have you met this guy, and why don't you go with this guy? And, and, and it can almost uh, give the impression that, well, if you don't find a guy now, you're going to be doomed to this, this, this fate uh, uh, worse than death of, of singleness. Or Tim Keller also talks about a number of phrases he's heard, phrases like, well, as soon as you're satisfied with God, he'll bring someone special into your life, as if God is the means to get someone really special. Or, or phrases like, Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful, as if singleness is really due to your sinfulness and and you need to kind of shape up before God's going to... There's all sorts of phrases that we hear in the church, that in the church we can put pressure on people and and almost treat single people as if um, they they need to get married or else it's going to be a horrible life for them. And so we need this reminder as the church that singleness is a good gift that God calls many of his people too. If, if, we, if we believe that, some might ask, well, well, how is that the case? How is it that singleness is a good gift in and of itself? 
isn't, isn't marriage a blessing? What about the companionship of marriage? And, and there may be remaining questions here. In fact, some, particularly with a, a psychological background, might think of this almost as sort of just a, a mental way to convince ourselves that we're in a good state. But Christ makes the goodness of singleness a reality, not just a cover or a change of mindset. Paul says later in this chapter, and, and uh, late, uh, we'll get to the, the passage more thoroughly in a few weeks, but he says later in the chapter that the things of this world are passing away, but our hope in Christ is eternal. Marriage is a thing of this world. We know from what Christ said that marriage is not something that will continue in heaven. The reality of our relationship with Christ and the hope that all believers have as they rest their lives in their Savior is not of this world. Our sure confidence of the eternal blessings comes through Christ. And as Tim Keller talks about this, he concludes this way. He said, what does this mean for our attitude towards marriage and families? Paul says it means that both being married and not being married are good conditions to be in. We should neither be overly elated by getting married nor overly disappointed by not being so because Christ is the only spouse that truly fulfills us and God's family is the only family that truly embraces us and satisfies us. In addition, Keller reminds us that marriage is not an eternal state. It is penultimate Penultimate is one of those great big words that kind of pause over and scratch our heads over, but it means something less than ultimate. It's not ultimate. It's not the highest. It's less than that. Um, marriage is penultimate. It is a sign that points to the kingdom of God. Marriage is a sign that points to the kingdom of God. But those who are united to Christ are part of God's kingdom. And so you think of the analogy if 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 we are here in Lancaster, do we need a sign pointing us how to get to Lancaster? Well, no. We're already here in Lancaster. If you, if we as singles are already in the kingdom of God, a sign pointing to the kingdom of God is not a requirement to have the fullness and the fulfillment and all of the satisfaction of Christ in his kingdom. We have the reality in Christ. The sign is not necessary to comfort or fulfillment or satisfaction. Christ is the necessary satisfaction. And there is no incompleteness, no lack, when we are in union with our Savior. See, this is the revolutionary truth of the gospel, that both marriage and singleness are gifts God gives to different people. And so the calling to us is to glorify God with whichever gift he has given us. Has God called you to marriage? Glorify God with your body, giving to your spouse, being faithful to your marriage, and giving thanks and praise to God. Has God called you to singleness? Glorify God by avoiding sexual immorality, using yourself and your time and your body for what God has called you to do. Giving thanks, giving praise to your perfect, complete, and full Savior. So Paul affirms, he affirms the goodness of marriage. He affirms the goodness of singleness as God calls each one. Then we move on in the third section in our passage, verses 10 through 16. And here Paul turns to comment on separation and divorce. In these verses, in in verses 10 through 16, Paul envisions two potential scenarios that he addresses. 
On the one hand, Paul knows the challenges of marriage, and he knows the sinfulness of our hearts. Surely in Corinth, just as there are today, there were many marriages that were not pleasant. There were many marriages that were impacted by the brokenness of our sinful hearts. There were many marriages that would break down, just as marriages break down today in our culture, in our churches. Spouses would have gotten tired of each other or felt that they could be happier with someone else. Or maybe spouses felt that they could be happier without the responsibilities of marriage and family. Maybe one spouse was controlling and demanding. Maybe the marriage was characterized by fights and conflict. And it seemed like the only chance for peace was to leave rather than to endure. There are many scenarios in which marriage is difficult. But in these scenarios, Paul says this, To the married I say, the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Two brief comments here. One, and I'll comment on this more in a few minutes, but I do not believe, along with most commentators, um, that this verse is addressed to scenarios like adultery that Jesus addresses as legitimate excuses for divorce. I believe this is addressing the scenarios that would have been frequent in the Corinthian church, where there are difficulties in marriage, but adultery uh, is not in view. Second, um, I would, you may notice as you're reading verses 10 and 11 that a different word is used for the wife and for the husband. He commands that the wife should not separate from the husband, and he commands that the husband should not divorce his wife. And so many commentators wrestle over, well, is there something that's allowed to one but not the other? And I would agree with the majority of commentators uh, that, no, this is just stylistic variation, that the two words of separate and divorce are referring to the same action of leaving the marriage. And so I don't think this is giving a, a husband or a wife more or less options to both spouses. The command is to the married, I say, do not separate, do not leave, do not leave. Um, so this is the first um, scenario here. If two spouses are unable to live together and do separate, Paul reminds them, he says, if, if, if one does separate, then they are to remain unmarried or be reconciled to their spouse. And Paul is saying that there is no room in a Christian view of marriage for separating or divorces because of challenges and difficulties and going out to look for someone more compatible or more like you or where you will be happier. That does not fit with a Christian understanding of marriage. Now, this may mean that for many in difficult marriages, God calls us to live patiently, even to suffer, as we live together as two people broken by sin. And and I don't think Paul is giving us some sort of glib, just live with it command. He's not saying, well, you know, it's bad, but just live with it. He's calling us back to the bedrock truth we've already discussed. If marriage is not the end in itself or the fulfillment and completion of who we are, but merely a sign pointing to Christ and to our Savior, then in Christ, this situation, even of a painful marriage, while challenging, painful, wearying, and heart-wrenching in many situations, does not take away the foundation of our comfort and our hope in the true spouse, Christ, who died for us, rose for our life, and walks with us every wearying step of the way. That bedrock truth goes with those who live in difficult marriages. On the other hand, Paul addresses another scenario. Paul 
acknowledges a frequent reality in the early church, namely that there were many conversions in the early days of the church that left marriages radically altered. Where there were two unbelievers, now there is a believer and an unbeliever. And in many cases, a spouse was unwilling to live with a man or a woman whose life was changed by Christ and dedicated to Christ. So Paul gives these instructions. He says believers are to remain with their unbelieving spouses if the unbelieving spouse is willing. If the unbelieving spouse is unwilling, then he says that the wife or husband is not bound or not enslaved. So what do we do with these two scenarios? How do we think about separation and divorce when we think of the two scenarios that Paul has laid out here? I think we can say two things. First, as we consider Paul's words on the whole, it is clear that Paul first emphasizes the obligation that we have to the marriage covenant. Even in challenging marriages or in the cases of, of separation, we have a remaining obligation to our marriage. And that's the first thing that Paul emphasizes. In a culture that liberally allows divorce and even encourages, well, if it's not making you happy, go ahead and separate and find someone else. Paul urges us to remember the obligation of our marriages. That said, I agree with the other pastors on our staff and with most commentators that Paul's instructions here are given to reinforce the importance of a marriage vow taken before God to the Corinthian church. It's not just another contract. Paul's comments are not meant to override Jesus' own allowance for divorce in the case of adultery. Uh, In the case of adultery, divorce is certainly allowed by Christ um, in the Gospels. In fact, Paul seems to give a second allowance for divorce here. While there's certainly some debate over the language, Paul says in verse 15 that if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound or is not enslaved. Now, what does it mean to say that the, un, uh, that the believing spouse is no longer bound or is no longer enslaved? Well, whenever possible, we like Scripture to interpret Scripture for us. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul uses the exact same phrase talking about marriage. And if you wanted to turn to Romans chapter 7, you could see in the first couple of verses where Paul says, Do you not know, brothers, and I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband by, while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of the marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Well, this word for bound, the word for bound and enslaved in Romans is the exact same word, the exact same phrase that is used here in Corinthians. And so if in Romans we we hear that if a husband dies, the woman is no longer bound and is free to remarry, then using the same words and phrases in the context of marriage, the pastors on our staff and and others also agree that abandonment and a, a spouse leaving is sufficient case to say that that believing spouse is not bound and is free to remarry. So Paul seems to add to adultery here to, to abandonment as a legitimate case where the believer is not breaking their marriage vow, but the unbeliever has broken the marriage vow and left. And when that vow is broken and abandoned by the other spouse, there is freedom. There is freedom for that believer to honor God and to marry uh, again. 
Certainly, we can read these words and, and we could immediately start popping in our minds all sorts of scenarios, perhaps. And, and one, one verse here or my brief comments can't cover every scenario that are out there. But I think as we look at, at Paul's statements here, we can say that God has given us truths in his word. He has given us commands and principles of marriage and of separation. And as we pray for wisdom, God does guide us as we address different scenarios and situations with these truths. And I'm certainly grateful for, for Dr. Light and, and, and Tucker York and others who have done so uh, in our church very well. So here is Paul. Here is Paul commenting on the goodness of marriage and the foundation of marriage as two people giving themselves wholeheartedly to each other. He's commented uh, on marriage in a way that radically undercuts the view of marriage and sexuality in the Greek culture and in our modern culture. Paul's commented on singleness and the goodness of singleness, the good gift of singleness that God calls many of his people to, undercutting the Jewish perception of the requirement of marriage. And Paul's given instructions to those who are in difficult marriages and to those whose marriages break down or where a spouse abandons his husband, or her, his wife, or, or her husband. So how can we conclude? What's the best conclusion to come to here? I think in the end we can come to this conclusion. Each one of us has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now where God has called you, whether God has called you to marriage or whether God has called you to singleness, whether God has called you in a difficult marriage or whether God has called you in a situation where you have been abandoned, or separation, or adultery has occurred. Be faithful and obedient to your heavenly Father and your perfect husband, Christ, your perfect spouse, Christ, who died for you. Live to please and to praise the man who has given himself for you, loved you, and secured you, and who will never let you go, who will never separate, never leave you, no matter what our sins or our failures. Nothing on heaven or earth can separate us from the love of our spouse, Christ Jesus. So live faithfully to him, looking to the hope when our husband will lead us to his home and dwell with us and we with him forever. All praise to Christ. Let's pray. God, in our brokenness, we confess that there is much that we do that is outside of your will and outside of your plan for marriage, outside of the picture that you have given us. Convict us of our sin, we pray. But thank you, Lord, for the instructions and guidance you have given us on how we can live to your glory. And thank you, thank you above all for Christ Jesus who died to take our guilt and take our shame, cover our failure, and to secure us as his bride. May we look ahead to our eternal marriage with him with joy and excitement, knowing that it is your work and you secure it, and so we rest on your goodness forever. And we pray this through Christ's name. Amen.